Hello and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to be dealing with uh, one of those kind of core and foundational issues that we all could stand to learn more about, and that is how to resolve conflict. You could really say that this is the... uh, substratum of why we have the world that looks like we have today, which is, besides the natural beauty and wonder around which uh, we seek to uh, build our lives and which is all around us, even in a place like the Big Apple, look, we call it a a natural phenomenon, an apple, Uh, even here in Manhattan of New York City. We have plenty of trees and gardens and uh, even grass pushing its way through the cracks in the sidewalk. That's how powerful and how fecund nature is, even in man-made settings, urban settings like cities. So... Dealing with nature and beauty, man-made as well, is one of the most delightful aspects of our lives. And dealing with conflict is one of the most difficult and most testy, if you will. So I don't know if we really need to learn much more about um the joy of beauty, although, God, teach me more. I'm open. But learning about conflict and dealing with the energies around conflict, the emotions around conflict, the belief systems around conflict, that, my friends, is another story. For those of you who listen to A Better World and me weekly, you know that underneath, All we do here at A Better World Radio and TV has to do with exactly that, creating a better world. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, let's just say as an old hippie of the 60s and 70s, uh, that world is a world of peace. It's a world of harmony. It's a world in which people of great biodiversity, get along and learn to love each other if they don't organically, and learn to cooperate, to connect, to enjoy the differences, to build a type of community and society in which people can flourish and prosper while in harmony with, in alliance with, in stewardship with Mother Earth herself. So it would be a complementary relationship, a mutually respectful relationship, one in which we walk gently on the Earth, yet fully. We do what we need to do. We use resources respectfully. These are gifts from Mother herself. And we use them in a way to replenish them, not one-off 
use, destroy, slash and burn, which is very obviously the kind of society that we have today and we have had for actually millennia. And not all of it is the uh, derives from the activity of the Anglo. No, in fact, there have been and are today slash and burn indigenous societies, communities as well. And I will dare say that that is born out of a lack of knowledge themselves, a lack of a certain kind of education. Well, if we take indigenous wisdom, native wisdom that we all have and mix it with our uh, scientific knowledge today, we can very much come up with a paradigm, a model of being and acting on the earth, in the world, that is truly harmonious, renewable, friendly, eco-friendly, and sustainable. That is the subject of today. But first, let me just remind you that uh, we have a free newsletter, which we send out to, God knows, some 70,000-plus people every week across the world, largely the United States, and probably within that, largely the general New York area. And it announces the shows both on television every when, every Monday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and the weekly radio show here on Blog Talk Radio although I am in dialogue with other possible radio stations, in fact. And uh, we'll see what comes of that in order to expand A Better World's reach and media platform. As those of you who listen with any regularity know that we have recently become a non-profit 501c3, and the funds that are donated, that are contributed, I like to say that are invested in our vision of a better world, uh, will be used to start with for purposes of building the media platform. So, coming back now to the subject at hand of conflict resolution, mediation between people. Let's start first on a local level, on a micro level. That's mean, that means you and me. That means uh, the people with whom we live, our spouses, our partners, whether that be in the family or in business. How do we navigate those relationships in a way to deal with the differences, to deal with conflict, to deal with irritations, annoyances, judgments, reactivity. Oh, my God. How did I get elected to this post, huh? Dear God. (laughs) But, in fact, it's only when we deal with the weakest links of our human chain that we can really grade and evolve instead of plateau or devolve. And I think that if we look at the world today, I think that a case could be made for devolution, devolution, excuse me, uh, 
I know we're all infatuated with evolution, but a very interesting radio program I heard recently on uh, WMYC was suggesting that our brains, after two million years of expansion and development, have begun, based on any number of variables from electromagnetic fields to intense pollution, chemical pollution of our water, our soil, and our air, based on intense uh, cell phone, computer, microwave activity, based on who knows what governments may be ejecting into the air with such things as chemtrails, who knows what kind of surveillance mechanisms are out and about uh, further polluting our atmosphere, our biosphere, and to some extent our noosphere. All of these really do erode and corrode our DNA and our bioforce, our life force. And it actually does lead to mutation. So our new cellular replication isn't the same as it used to be. As Yogi Berra said, great philosopher sage who just recently left us, uh, the future just ain't what it used to be. And uh, that being said, I think we know that we have to these days detoxify from the heavy electromagnetic activity that is generated in our homes, in our offices, in our apartments, in our shelters of all sorts. And there is such a thing as taking an electricity uh, diet, being on a diet of fasting, of literally pulling everything out of the wall sockets and just living and breathing without electricity for a night, for a day, for a weekend. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Or we can, of course, go into the woods or go uh, take long walks in a park and get away for hours at a stretch. You know, there are different ways and variations on this theme. But, you know, the thing is that we are being polluted and it is affecting our nervous system. It's affecting our brain. It's uh, it's affecting the actual electrical circuitry in our own bodies. And not just saying it's adversely affecting. We're not harmonizing with all of these frequencies, they're too much. They are uh, overload. And in fact, just today, I had the great pleasure of um, sitting in on a lecture at the New School on the subject of the effect of music on our brain, written a book by a similar name, Your Brain on Music, Daniel Levitin, who was speaking to this uh, college class there. It was wonderful. And one of the books that he most recently wrote is called The Organization of the Mind, How to Deal with Information Overload in Today's World, I paraphrase. And I really feel that this experience that we all have 
of overload creates an undue amount of stress, which means actually duress. A certain amount of stress is a good thing. We bring it on ourselves deliberately, uh, and it helps us grow. That's not a problem. It helps us get strong. It's the excess stress. It's the duress that changes the game and can lead to and does lead to ill health, imbalance, energetic chaos, and incoherence on all levels of our mind, heart, and being. It's like spiritual scrambled eggs. (laughs) We really do have to be mindful of this because it's just not healthy at all. And it it leads to a brain that's not functioning, functioning optimally. So these are the issues that we are facing as human beings. Hence the dire need for resolving conflict. Because if we look around at the world and we see the way people act, behave, their postures, their attitudes, their values, belief systems, we see a world in chaos. We see a world where in the Middle East, people are bombing each other and uh, killing each other left, right, and sideways. Some are beheading each other. Some of the United States' closest allies, Saudi Arabia, are very involved in monthly beheadings. And uh, they're supposed to be civilized. Come on. We have people getting murdered, doctors, for breaking from conventional thinking, which is exactly what good scientists are supposed to do, break from that kind of conventional thinking. So... In any event, it seems pretty obvious how, how necessary it is to learn more about conflict resolution and mediation. So I want to just say the premise of what I'm speaking of here is that once we learn the tools, the tricks of the trade, which I'm also going to suggest are not that difficult All of us can really do this. Once we learn it on a local level, on a micro level, the same exact process can be applied on a non-local level. (laughs) Yes, on a grander macro level, meaning on an international level, national and international. There needs to be a will because there is a way. So cultivating the will on the tools is something that can really be done. So, let's begin with conflict resolution between people. Number one, people see things different ways. Let's take a boy and a girl. Let's take a husband and a wife. All right? Let's start with that. Now, I know this is going to be a bit generic, but here it goes. You can take notes if you'd like, because it's simple, it's straightforward, it's direct, and I will do everything I can. It as simple, so the notes will be brief. Two people are in disagreement. What do they do? One, sit down and face one another 
so their eyes can meet easily, head in front, looking, gazing at each other. Non-verbally, making contact, creating a resonance field between the two. Even if there's upset, even if there's anger, this can still be done. It's also true, number two, one can reach out and hold the hand of the other. That creates further tactile kinesthetic resonance. So you've got a visual resonance that you are inviting in. You've now got a kinesthetic resonance that you are engaging. And next will be an auditory resonance, which occurs through one person speaking and the other person listening and then switching, allowing the other to speak uninterrupted and best if one speaks first from the heart and not and rather succinctly and then the other follows same and the other listens with the ears and with the heart and with the body true whole authentic holistic comprehensive listening it's easy it's not hard We've all done it. We quiet our own minds down. When we hold hands and we're looking and resonating with another, we actually start to already generate some alpha waves. If we were in an anger state, then we were um, in a, a moderate to high beta state. And now I'm just talking about brainwave frequencies. Now we're beginning to drop down and drop in little bit okay this is good this is a cozier state of mind and being good for listening good for healing you listen to each other and you may find that you are hearing things in this level this depth of listening that you hadn't heard before maybe it was a nuance maybe it was an actual explicit paragraph, a real piece of content that you weren't aware because you stormed out of the room just previously or the day before and didn't hear that important paragraph or something of that sort, or you just blocked, tuned out, blocked it out, and here it is sailing right into your ears and body and heart. And you go, oh, I didn't realize you meant so-and-so. Oh, well, that changes everything. Okay, so that's one possible scenario. But let's say you really didn't miss any paragraph. There wasn't a paragraph that was just waiting to be heard that you missed for whatever the reason. Let's say there's a real substantive disagreement. So how do you go about this? I'm suggesting that people can agree to disagree. Number one. Number two, they can say, look, you feel this way. I feel that way. I don't really want to go out and meet your friends. I'll make it concrete. And I know you very much want me to go out and meet your friends and be social and engage in that activity 
over there across town to do. Tonight is not going to be a good night. I will agree to do this another time. With your blessing, I will tonight bow out. This is called a compromise. This is a negotiation. The other party isn't pleased. He says, you always say that. Well, always is a big word, and it's not wise to use it. But you can say, frequently, you say the same thing. I would like you to commit to the next time this scenario arises that you really do agree to come. So that concretizes. It takes it out of the domain of generality and generalization, and it renders concrete something between the two people around which there is a disagreement or a conflict in this case, and it doesn't seem resolvable because she always wants one thing and he always wants something else, so it feels, so it appears. But in fact, that is what her general uh, wish is, and his is the opposite. So they agree on coming together in a certain time, at a certain place, on a certain date. So that provides some resolution. It's a matter of specifying. So we go, the principle is going from the general to the specific, from generalization to specificity. Done with a sense of mutual respect. After all, you're there holding hands. You're withstanding the energy of upset because neither of you are getting exactly what you want. So you realize that this is just how things get resolved. It is win-win, but there's patience that needs to be exercised on one side and the other is getting, let's just say, the immediate gratification, the other one is getting delayed gratification, and another occasion that will switch. Okay? So what are the elements here? There is sitting down and creating this resonance field by facing each other and making literal direct eye contact. Two, there's the holding of hands, which creates the kinesthetic resonance field and contact. Three, there's the listening, one and then the other. In turn, not speaking at the same time, granting each other the space to promise to be succinct and speak from the heart and then get to the specifics at hand. So you've got three elements here that are very important, the visual the tactile, and the audio. Audio, right? The listening. So, this creates an atmosphere already for a deeper, richer kind of communication. You speak in the first person, I feel this way, or I feel that way, Number one, 
I wish you would be coming with me. I desire your presence. You are important to me. I love you. I care about you. It's important to me. This is a business arrangement that I have with these people, and it would be good for me to bring my wife or my my lover or my partner or my girlfriend. It would be good, and I want you to know that. So please let that sit in your mind so you can be big-hearted with me as I am and attempt to be big-hearted and generous with you. So there's always a give and a take, a give and receive, okay, between people. Now, complex, obviously. And my name is not Judge Judy, although sometimes I feel like I am a judging, you know, based on the work I do as a coach and a therapist and stress management consultant, oftentimes for couples and sometimes for families and certainly for individuals. So I'm giving the basics, the elements, and the parameters. I should also step back and say, when you go into this kind of conversation slash communication, it's with the intent to resolve. It's with the intent to make peace. It's with the intent to cooperate maturely and work out the differences in, let's call, a reasonable way. There's an ebb and a flow There's a balancing act. Everything doesn't go one way or the other. person who is party to this is literally party, part of the resolution. At a talk I gave along with my wonderful colleagues from the Friends of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, Uh, my fellow board members, this past August at the Wainwright House in Rye, New York, um, my uh, colleagues, Victoria and Ron Friedman especially, set up this wonderful day where we all spoke and created peace among ourselves. We created an environment of community and we shared from our hearts matters that are very important to us on subjects such as heaven on earth. We talked about some of the issues regarding our environment and our body politic and economic injustice and justice. And we were honest about the issues before us, as well as the glory of life itself the magnificence of the universe and the divine. We really went full spectrum in dealing with the elements of our lives, both individually and collectively. And at that event, this is the reason I'm mentioning it, I spoke about a hypothetical situation of bringing together Uh, President Obama 
and Vladimir Putin. And it was at a time when things were sort of heating up. Actually, was it this past August or the August before this? Oh, my. Yes, it was. Um, And the issues between the United States regarding Ukraine and the like and Russia were reaching a level that some felt was reminiscent of the Cold War. Ugh. I'll tell you. I first painted this picture in a film script I began to write back in 1980 when Reagan was president and about to meet with Gorbachev to talk about those issues that reigned supreme back then. And first I'll start with that. The film script involved this idea that uh, my character in the film was mediator, and I convened a meeting between Gorbachev and Reagan to sit down in, uh, for some reason it was at Mystic Seaport up in uh, Connecticut. Very beautiful, very serene place on the Long Island Sound. Maybe there's a a meaning to mystic in this situation. In any event, uh, we were lounging about in a very simple living room of a house that sat on the water. And uh, after a sort of a nice lunch and talk and chat, I engaged in hypnotizing both of them. And this is the film, and uh, I haven't made it yet. If anyone wants to contribute the funds and some direction, uh, we can still talk about this. And I hypnotized them both, and I inserted in both of them a post-hypnotic suggestion that when they heard each other's names, they would feel a wonderful, warm feeling arise in their chest, in their heart. They would say, oh, of course, dear Gorby, oh, I love hearing your name. I have the warmest feelings of brotherhood whenever I hear your name. And Gorbachev would also say, "Um, oh, Ronnie Reagan, I love thinking about you, and I feel such a sense of connectedness and brotherhood every time I think of you and hear your name. So they, on this basis, go back to their respective countries, their uh, cabinets seek to um, create further conflict and distrust. But when the other's names are mentioned, There's this swooning effect that occurs. They dismiss their cabinets and they say, they get on the hotline with each other and say, how are we going to resolve these differences? You and I know we can trust each other and you and I know we want to trust each other and you and I know that our creating peace, our creating harmony will, yes, it will dent the market share 
and profitability of the military industrial complex in both of our respective countries, but we will build the educational uh, market share. We will build uh, all the other domains of our societies so that peace can reign and we can invest in infrastructure and all those other pesky problems both countries, all countries really have when they decide to actually support their people, their citizens. Wow. So that was one scenario. Going back, oh my God, 35 years. This latest one, about which I spoke up at the Wainwright House, um, is this. And these are the elements of creating peace in this situation, which can also be done on a personalized level as well. But when we look at more of the macro, it all becomes a bit more uh, kind of evident and distinct. So, they meet in a beautiful dacha outside of St. Petersburg. And that's a little house in the rural part outside of St. Petersburg. They first start with a good Russian meal. Not fancy schmancy, but real down-home ethnic Russian. They then listen to ethnic folk music from that region. Before you know it, Vladimir Putin's heart is softening and swaying and swooning because this music reminds him of his childhood and it reminds him of his family and his siblings and his parents and his love of his father and his mother. It brings forward warmth. And literally, in his body, cellularly, the music is bringing him this emotional experience because we know the relationship. We know something of the relationship between music and our emotions, music and our physiology, music and our brain. And so, in this kind of state, President Obama, about matters of world peace and coming to a place of understanding, agreement, and resolution becomes much, much, much easier. So, a dialogue can ensue. I'm going to go back again in history a little bit to another idea I had twice before. Once during George Bush Sr.'s uh, presidency and the following of President Clinton's. But I'm going to start with George Bush's because the last thing I am is a Republican. And uh, yet I was moved because I don't believe in parties at all, frankly. That's not important to me. Humans are important to me. And leadership is important to me. There was a phrase he used of a thousand points of light, if you remember. Yes, he 
peremptorily um, went into Iraq, it's true, for that Gulf War, which was a form of madness. Yes, very true. But there was a certain moment in time when it looked like George Bush Sr. was being quite the statesman for peace. And I'm sorry that I don't remember the details of that speech or even the exact context of it. But he did use that phrase of a thousand points of light, which in some way, if I recall, and please correct me if I'm wrong, also signified a thousand points of peace. And I think it had to do with Israel. I think it had to do with the Middle East. It really had to do with creating an environment of peace in the world. Now you'd say to yourself, that is coming from, you know, George Bush Sr., former head of the CIA. Wow. Carlisle Group? Strange. Probably Council on Foreign Relations at one point. Wow. Anyway, I was moved at that time by that phrase and that speech that sounded like it had a type of potential that could have really gone further had it been cultivated. You know, since we're speaking historically on this level, you could almost say that even President Nixon in his uh, meeting in China with the president of that time uh, in 1974 also broke open an opportunity for establishing an ongoing relationship toward nailing down peace in the world. Then there was another opportunity, I felt, during President Clinton. And in that case, it was going to be proactive. The United States at that point was very clearly the front-runner in superpower perspective and placement. I'm not big on the whole idea of superpower or power over at all, dominion, domination. Uh Uh-uh. I'm interested in the partnership model that has been, of course, promulgated by Rianne Eisler and others. And it's a very different way of looking at the world. And that's I come from. It's a cooperation model, a win-win model. Very different. But as the leader at that time, militarily and economically, very far ahead of the rest of the world during the 90s, I felt that Mr. Clinton should have convened a meeting of, I don't even like the phrase G8, but G8, G9, G10, bring together, maybe it should have been at the United Nations itself, and Security Council, General Assembly, but starting small and building out therefrom. Look, everyone, this is ridiculous. Building up our respective militaries is such a waste of time and money 
of resources, of energy, that we all know is way better spent in each of our countries on helping feed the poor, of creating fishing rods everywhere, is really what I mean, of of providing shelter for the homeless. Each of our countries has that problem, uh, providing um, educational opportunities and economic opportunities and healing our environment in each of our countries. We know we've gone past the tipping point in terms of environmental conservation, in terms of global warming. We know this. We know we have to be much wiser about our expenditures. Let's drop the military thing. Not saying none of us should have some low level of military, although I'll even say in the world I'm positing that might not even be necessary, but let's leave something intact so people don't feel god-awful naked, okay? But minimalist, minimalist, nuclear out, but completely finished, kaput, and even just standing armies brought to an absolute all-time minimum. Why? There is an intent parties to have the absolute minimum because we're working now, we're graduating to a partnership model instead of a domination, dominator model. And we all want each other to win and if one country is wealthier than the other, which of course is the case, we make different kinds of agreements to come and pinch hit, you know, step in and say, look, Yemen, we know you're the poorest. You don't have the resources to help your people with fishing rods, with irrigation, with what you need for local farming to feed the people of a given area, region, community. We're going to help you. And I'm not even saying charity. We're going to do this for you, but you're going to give that back to us either at some minimum, minimum interest or in exchange, some form of barter exchange. You're going to give us uh, other things. And the whole idea is that there's an attitude change, that we're going to work cooperatively as nations to help build each other. It's not at each other, it's with each other. That we we cross the Rubicon, we cross the threshold of saying we are working together cooperatively, not antagonistically, not competitively. Each group, each nation has a form of wealth and talent and gifts to bring to the center. And we will enjoy those gifts, each and every one of us, in different ways. Some nations have lots of money. Some have different resources. Some have brains. Some have culture. You know, whatever it is, we come together, and I'm saying that it is all based on intention and attitude. 
changes the posture for us all to stop. Uh, we agree that we're not going to war with each other, but that we're going to help support each other's well-being. Utopian sounding, eh? You betcha. And that's the way I think we have to think. We have to think as visionaries of the world we want to create. So that was a missed opportunity as far as I'm concerned. If the wealthiest, most powerful nation on earth, a phrase that it seems our politicians in the United States love to use, if it came forward and said, look, plowshare time, man, plowshare time. We're not interested in dominating any longer. We're interested in working cooperatively. Instead of bombs, we're going to bring food. We're going to bring fishing rods, as the phrase would have it. That changes everything. When W. Bush decided to bomb Afghanistan, I can't imagine. It's so absurd. It's as absurd as Iraq. The whole thing is absurd. It's so interesting. People these days, the politicians say, you know, we should not have gone into Iraq. Well, that's true. There were no weapons of mass destruction except for the minds of the American politicians. Those are weapons of mass destruction. Um. But nobody ever talks about not ever having gone into Afghanistan. I do. There are some. But I really don't hear that conversation. But that's where I come from. Just, it is a knee-jerk. One man, the United States government officially said, caused um, the 9-11 attack. And that was Osama bin Laden. Well, I question that completely in itself, but let that aside. Let's just say, because that was the official view. Now, if you're going to go look for one man who's in a cave somewhere between Afghanistan and Pakistan, you think, do you really declare war in a country and bring in thousands of troops because there's one man and maybe his close entourage you want to get? I mean, come on. This is a joke. Yet, everyone drank the Kool-Aid. Oh, those peaceniks among us, like myself, and no doubt you, uh, can reflect now and see the arch absurdity of that. If we wanted to challenge the Taliban, which ended up to be the story, okay, can't you challenge them in another way rather than killing them and bombing them and taking innocent lives at the same time? How about building schools where women can get educated and you can protect the women coming and going from the school and to the school, if that's a Taliban type of issue? How is that? Building schools, building shelter, um, farming, something other than opium, that is. You know, creating self-sufficiency through good works. Hello? Some say this is a Christian nation. Well, let's see it. Since when are bombs Christian? But good works is very Christian. Let's go for it. And every other religion 
and all spirituality would be seeking to be of service in one way or another. Seva, karma yoga, you name it. We want to be in service. And that's not killing. It's not perpetuating violence. Do you know how the United States would have been regarded worldwide if when after 9-11, instead of bombing Afghanistan, uh, let's say they sent one of those uh, um, special forces missions into a few caves to find bin Laden, who I don't think they really wanted to find at all. But that's, again, another conversation. Um, But they decided to spend some money building schools, as I just described, in in Afghanistan and brought much needed medical supply, etc. You understand, it's an about-face. It's a 180-degree different kind of intervention. It's medicine and doctors without borders, you know. It's, it's love without borders. It's kindness without borders. Now the world would go, oh, this is unbelievable. This is precedent-setting. There is no antecedent to this one. My God, the United States really did it this time. And the love and the admiration would be phenomenal. There wouldn't be blowback. There might attempt to be in saying, oh, this is a fraud. But not over time. It wouldn't be considered. And anyone seeking to war, seeking to perpetuate violence against the United States, well, the United States would have lots of allies, lots of them. You see, it's an inversion. It's stepping out of the box and giving what's really needed. The Taliban would be defenseless, disarmed, as it were, with such acts of kindness. Because we would have worldwide major support. So why don't we apply the same idea to different regions. How about Israel and Palestine? Huh? What about a two-party, a two-state solution, which has been on the table for decades? What about helping the Palestinians become more self-sufficient rather than bombing them and killing their children? I bet that if they were given economically viable choices, They would not be sending missiles and rockets, hand grenades, or throwing rocks at Israelis. They just don't think it. And that is what most human beings where there is warfare now are being deprived of. Economic opportunity, economic viability, being able to feed their families. Whether it's through a job or it's through farming. And let's put emphasis on farming, or massive gardening, whatever word, whether it's through hydroponics, aeroponics, permaculture, simple organic farming that's been going on worldwide for thousands upon thousands of years, where people traditionally uh, raise their own food, 
and shared with their neighbors and their family and their community. And someone grew potatoes and someone grew tomatoes and someone grew avocados and someone grew papaya. You know, it's so simple. It doesn't involve warfare. Well, then you can say, what about religious differences? Yeah, okay, you know what? That might get a little bit more complex. But even there, there are ways of negotiating this and resolving the human conflict. Well, what are they? Well, what if you said... Now, you know, it's not one size fits all here, so please understand. Uh, But in the case where you have the extreme Islamic perspective, extreme, not moderate, but extreme, sort of Sharia law and uh, women as uh, possessions, on and on, no schooling for girls, etc., This is extreme, I think, and most people feel that way, Um, except for, you know, whatever, a handful, a minority, I'll put, of men who are in these positions in such things as the Taliban. Okay, number one, looking at the size of the world population, what we're talking about is an infinitesimal amount of people that actually feel this way. Let's say we're actually at the negotiating table with them. We are at a peace table. Maybe we can say this, look. We're really not here to impose our ways on you. That has only wreaked havoc uh, where our point of view might be. We can't really pull, yank you out of the Stone Age into the modern age. It's going to hurt. It's not going to work. There is some level of cultural evolution that you all need to be engaged uh, and in time you will stumble on this, you will stumble on that, but we believe that long term you will come to see the errors in your ways and thinking and come to a more generous perspective about women, about girls, and their uh, interest in education, that you see the genders as um, uh, a form of equality here between them. And you'll, you know, in our language among us, that is, drop your nonsense. But, so what we're going to do in the meantime is we're not going to impose ourselves and say you cannot do this. We're going to say, you know, You see life one way, you have your followers, we see it a different way, we're in Afghanistan and Pakistan, let's say we're going to rope off an area that is for you, and if there are people who want to leave your place, they can come over to the roped-in part of us. So you do what you want on your soil, We'll do what we want to do on ours. And if there are people among your group that want to defect, let's say, they have the right to do so. And if there are people from our group that want to join yours, they have the right to do so. This is not a one-way street. It's two-way. That way you can go about your business inside your uh, delimited 
region, and we will go about that in hours. Okay? I know that may sound a little primitive, maybe a little naive, and it may well be. But unless we're dealing with, uh, you know, some concrete uh, situations, uh, it will seem a bit that way. But I want you to see that sitting down and putting yourself in the shoes of others and trying to understand why they feel the way they feel. That's the next stage, actually. Why do you believe that women should not have what men have? Why do you believe that women shouldn't be educated? Why do you believe that women are the possession of men? And see if it can be borne out textually in the Quran or other uh, texts of their religious belief. In this case, we're talking about Islam. And deconstruct as best we can. Deconstruct. And pull ourselves out of all religions. That's what I think. Pull ourselves, remove ourselves from all religions. And get down to the basic human biological necessities. And part of those, beyond food, shelter, is love and contact and engagement and different levels of intimacy. That's going to be a lot of work. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but with people with certain belief systems. But I believe it can be done. It's a process of deconditioning, of deprogramming. And But let's not be that, you know, star-eyed. Let's not be that rosy-eyed. And uh, let's say that we delimit regions where different practices can occur and trust in the power of evolution to shift consciousness eventually in people who really want to own each other and enslave each other and throw rocks at each other for varieties of things. Okay. So, coming back, we have ethnic food, we have ethnic music, i.e. folk songs and the like, we have ethnic, I, I'm so sorry, I can't believe I left this out in my first iteration. Ethnic humor. All of these are to warm the tummy and the heart and soul of the leaders, of the negotiators. And come to a place where we say, let's work this out. Let's go beyond war. Let's go beyond military buildup. Let's really look at what our motives are here. Let's form a new kind of of global order. Let's do it. And that's the kind of thing we need to do. That can help to avert such hell on earth and replace it with heaven on earth. So, in short, this is all a story about human conflict, and human resolution, using the richness of culture, 
the uh, biologically rooted things such as ethnic food, <laughs> ethnic cuisine. I know it sounds funny, ethnic humor. But when we can look at ourselves and we can laugh and we can see our own flaws and imperfections and share that with others who will in turn laugh at themselves, so there is, it creates a place and space of humility. Wow. We've got a different world. We've got a different type of dialogue when people are not just out looking out for themselves, but are looking out also for each other. It creates a different environment. It creates a heartfelt one. And that's a space in which everything can change. We can put people and planet before profits, before power, before ownership, before, certainly, yeah, before the entire acquisitive nature of people. It is part of our nature, let's be honest. But we also have different types of natures. We have higher and lower natures. We have things around which we have virtuous ideals and values. We have a notion of integrity. We can live by this. And everybody in their hearts really want to live by this. Because if you deconstruct acquisition, excess acquisition, and materialism, like a religion, if we deconstruct the quest for power, we see that there is usually a common denominator which looks like a lack of love that looks like an absence of self-worth, of positive self-regard, of positive self-image, of not feeling lovable. Now you'll laugh at me and say, oh, please, Mitchell, don't be so naive. There's so much more to it. Well, yes. There are layers of psycho-emotional complexity, I agree, but I will stand by saying it's on top of these very foundational, simple matters. People would not harm each other and cause violence in the world if they felt lovable and loved and cared for and respected and listen to their story heard of their own pain and suffering and interpretation of reality. So we can't give each other the space and time to hear the story? And then we can de debunk the story and say, okay, time to get on with it. We got the story. Let's move on now. Let's create a better world. Let's get on with future. Let's get on with being Let's get on with peace. Let's get on with health. Let's get on with fitness. Let's get on with respecting our Earth Mother, Gaia, Pachamama. Let's really be stewards. Let's say that we were hired to come to Earth to be good stewards of Earth. 
and to treat the earth sacredly. That's our job. And we can treat the earth sacredly through gentle forms of farming, feeding each other, caring for each other, helping each other build shelters, using uh, the earth with respect, and we use the word resources, but let's just say her prosperity, her fecundity, her fertility with love. Yes, it can be done. Share and share alike, just like we were told to do in kindergarten. What's that wonderful book? Everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten. <laughs> Is that funny? It's true. Almost completely true. Almost. Not quite. But on an emotional level, share with your neighbor, to your neighbor, don't speak crossly, listen before you speak, <laughs> show your teacher respect, you know. Give un- Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Yes. We're grown-up children. Our bodies matured, but our, but our emotions did not. Our emotions got arrested in childbirth, or sometime before it, or sometime after it, mainly after it. A number of you attended a conference that I emceed and moderated some months back at One Spirit Learning Alliance, One Spirit Seminary on West 36th Street. It was on pre- and perinatal psychology. It was on conscious birthing. And Dr. Francois Amigues was there, osteopath from uh, British Columbia, from the ideal community. We had some wonderful women come up from Brazil, uh, Monica Matos from Minneapolis, and it's she who I want to reference because of the film she made called Life Imitates Birth. And it cannot be emphasized too much. But the outside world that we see is born out of, no pun intended, our world view, our belief system, our attitude towards self that gets generated in the womb from inception, from zygote through the trimesters. It seems way long ago, way many moons ago, well, in some cases, yes, relatively speaking, but just think about your reactivity. Just think about your reactivity of the smallest things. You're in the supermarket, you're at the bank, you're in line, you're walking down the street. Notice your reactivity to others, your judgments, just notice. Where do these all come from? Why do we speak badly about others or ourselves, for that matter? Where does that entire negative generation come from? What's the motor behind it? I'm suggesting to you, program ourselves by getting in touch with our own, our own uh, sense of self-love, self-worth, self-respect, self-image, and if we don't feel we have any of those things, 
Well, dang, we can generate them. We'll make them. We've got the inner resources because we've got imagination to do so. Just make it. Boom. It's made. Feed it. Water it. Nourish it. Nurture it. Reparent yourself. Let your friends reparent you for a little bit. Have fun with it. You see, we have it all at our fingertips. It takes some work. It takes some discipline. Yes, that's true. It takes persistence. Why? Well, we've already got the entrenched neural nets. That's why. We've got the neural network already with its attitude and its energy field that says the opposite. I am not lovable. I am not loved. I am not cared for. I am not respected. I am not worthy. I do not have a positive self-regard and self-image. That's been entrained in us from inception. So there is an already existing network. However, if you stop investing in that network by building a new one that is positively uh, created and conceived in the ways I was describing, well, guess what? We're creating a new part of our brain that controls different parts of our body and our judgments and our reactivity and the whole shooting match, the whole thing, our use of language, our engagement of attitude and posture. Well, you could say you're becoming schizophrenic. Maybe. (laughs) But can you imagine having built a you a new you, the way you would like yourself to be? You know, one of the, to me, one of the most articulate people about this is uh, my colleague and dear friend, Dr. Joe Dispenza, who, in his book, Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself, is speaking about this kind of phenomenon. The brain power, we stop investing in one, which means we're divesting in that one, in the ways we don't want to be, but we are that way unconsciously. And we invest. It's like investing in green, renewable power instead of in coal, if you want to think about it that way. And when we do that, we become wealthy investing in something that's life-supporting and life-affirming. How cool is that? So you can apply this on our personal levels of life. And if you have a partner who wants to do same, oh my God, then you are reinforcing each other's goodness. And there's a whole physiology that comes to this, that comes out of this, and on which this is based actually. So we get, I made reference to your your brain on music. But you can go through the radio archives at A Better World and find Dr. Stan Tatkin, T-A-T-K-I-N, and find an interview I did with him, I don't know, a year and a half ago or so, which is your brain on love and what happens to our internal rhythms, what happens to our immune system, what happens to our levels of oxytocin, our entire biohormonal 
profile. Everything changes for the good. Remember Candace Pert, who used to work for NIH, who wrote The Molecules of Emotion. She, too, was in, was it, uh, was she in uh, What the Bleep Do We Know? Or she was in that other film um, by Austin Vickers, uh, who I also interviewed. You'll find him on uh, A Better World as well, and I would definitely recommend looking him up. Oh, God, I knew him as a kid. I knew his parents. <laughs> he became such a wonderful man. The uh, Oh, uh, the people versus the state of illusion, of delusion, <laughs> of illusion. <laughs> really brilliant name. And boy, he did a wonderful job. Joe is in that film as well as Kansas Burt. That's what it is. Uh, just, just brilliant thinking. This is all about the leverage we have inside our own body and not just inside, even outside our own sphere of influence, our own uh, magnetic field, electromagnetic field, our own aura, power that we have is phenomenal for influencing ourselves and creating a new you, a new self. Why not? We'll take the good elements of what we've already cultivated and we will weave them in. You want to call it genetic engineering? Go ahead. Well, funny you mention it. Then we get into epigenetics, which I mentioned in the description of today's show. So this is a good time to bring it in. When we activate these parts of ourselves, and we build a new me, a new you, a new mini-me that could become the maxi-me. Oh, that's funny. Um, We are shifting the real estate, if you will, of our nervous system. And we start to get healthier because smiling and laughing and engaging virtues and becoming less unconscious feeds our immune system and feeds our cellular respiration. Everything changes. And we do develop a new you. It's like a new birth. Maybe this is what was meant by being reborn, huh? Wow. I wouldn't doubt it. It's really giving birth to the self we choose. It's a conscious birthing. So epigenetics, what's interesting is, as Joe Dispenza would say, we start signaling different genes when we behave differently in alignment with something deeper. Let's call it our soul. And we start signaling new genes, which means that our genetic material, our actual DNA starts change. You got it. We are not just the recipients of the information of the DNA. We are shaping the DNA. And this is one of the great gifts my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Bruce Lipton, cellular biologist, author of The Biology of Belief, talks about. And he is in many ways the father of epigenetics. He said, first of all, that all cells have a brain. That's the membrane. Yep. You got it. And it is receiving information external to itself. 
that there are these fibrous, these like cilia, these hairs that are listening like antennae to the environment because those antennae need to keep the cell safe and away from harm. So they are detecting like a dog's whiskers. Is it safe? Can we move into this field without being harmed? Will we survive? And when the signal is okay, as Einstein said, one of the fundamental questions of our lives is, is the universe friendly? If we deem it as friendly, we have one attitude. If we deem it as dangerous, we have another. I'm recommending, not just suggesting, that we deem it as friendly and see what shows up. And there's a physics basis to what I'm saying, a quantum physics at least, if not classical physics basis for the energy that we put out, get an equal and opposite reaction back. So that's Newtonian. In the quantum world, it goes even further because of the butterfly effect and our ability to affect matter, particles, protons, other side of the planet because there is no distance on some level of reality between ourselves and everything else. Awesome. It's a, a space of presence. Rupert Cheldrake also explores this in his beautiful work, um, The Sense of Being Stared At, the uh, videos he made of a relationship between a uh, dog and his or her master. There is this simultaneity, a synchronicity, literally, same time. So there's a transcendent quality to all of this. And so it goes with our DNA and in the epigenetic realm that we start to shape ourselves based on our own conscious broadcast. And it comes back to us as a feedback loop in the form of a reshaped DNA, a reshaped genetic structure that feeds back what it is we put out, which is happening right now anyway. It's just that what we're getting back is not what we say we really want. It's too much mishigas, as we say in Chinese. <laughs> too much, you know, trauma. Too much drama. Too much sturmendrang. So, if we want, as they say, what you put out, you get back. Well, there is such resounding truth to this on so many levels that, well, now we actually have this ancient adage fleshed out literally in science. We understand through epigenetics that that is a process that actually occurs. It's call and response, if you will. So, you create that feedback loop and then you build consensus around you through community, through your partner, through your friends. I imagine we all have them. Through our family, we have some form of family, and we create these consensus feedback loops. I am loved. I do love. I am good. 
I have talent. I have gifts. I am worthy. And you continue to spin this up. It becomes an alchemical formula between us and our DNA. This rich dialogue conversation that occurs. It's very empowering, very powerful. And then we spin it to include our larger circles, our inner circle to start with, and then out creating a powerful morphogenetic field. And this is one of the ways change works. And this is why we really can have peace on earth. I know it appears impossible or close to it. I know it appears that way. But we have to pierce the appearance. We have to go beyond it and reach and come from another level above appearance, inside appearance, not be thrown by appearance. Because in reality, the appearance is the illusion. That's what the Vedic teachings have spoken of. Maya, or the Japanese, makyo. It's the same idea. It's not that the world is an illusion. I know they say that. The world is not an illusion. The way we view it is illusory. If we don't get down and deep, down and dirty, if you will, to the raw ingredients, the real stuff of it all, go beyond the facade. The emperor has no clothes. And then we start to deal with the guts of the situation. I dare say that everyone who is pumping themselves up as a religious, uh, what's the word, leader of some sort, of extreme movements, that is, of extreme movements, you know, cults, religious, fundamental, extremism, They're getting puffed up because of their own sense of self-worthlessness. Where else does it come from? The standing on idealist grounds. and It's just a form of madness. Taking things away from other people. Like freedom. Or material things. It's because there's a lack inside oneself. That's how it works. This is the basis of the psychology you will find in the hedge funds and the banking institutions and the rungs of government. This is where it originates. I'm suggesting to you that you pull off the masks and look at the underbelly and see. There's immense creativity that can be uh, shared among people. But we have... And the the new genetics suggest, the new interpretations of Darwin say, the neuroscience corroborates that we are really designed for cooperation. Lynn McTaggart's work in The Bond, the series of, of research studies that she shows, shows that we are designed for bonding our survival is based on social interactions smiling is a form of engagement and charming 
which is a form of creating alliances with other members of our species. So together we can walk into the wood and we can forage for food together, bonded, oxytocin binding us in a foreign area, foreign, you know, an unknown wood in the forest, in the jungle. And we bond together through oxytocin. It's built into our system biologically to bring us together. Mating, where's that come from? Sexual energy, what's that all about? Sexual chi, that we want to, we want to have sex. Well, you betcha. This is all part of the preservation of the species. Think about it in species context, biological context, and it all starts to make sense. Killing each other as a means of survival, this notion of survival of the fittest, I don't think so. It's really not accurate, and based on what I continue to hear, Darwin never said that. So, again, history is layered with untruths, fictions that we have all been programmed with, conditioned by, and living um, much sadder lives as a result. But if we get in touch with our power and understand the higher levels of neuroscience and spiritual teachings, they really do come together. And uh, we can have a different life. We can really have harmony on Earth. We can laugh our way to supporting each other and eating wonderful ethnic cuisine, listening to incredible uh, local music and dance and celebrate this beautiful life on Earth as sacred stewards of our land and our species. Well, thank you very much. I hope you found that interesting. Uh, certainly write to me at mjr at abetterworld.net, mjr at abetterworld.net. I love your feedback, part of the feedback loop, folks. Uh, we take donations. We really think of them as investments in creating a better world so we can expand our platform. We also have ideas about expanding beyond that into creating uh, model communities, templates, a uh, rural one, an urban one, with farming, with all of the elements of a renewable, replenishable, happy, bonded, cooperative community. So on that note, go to betterworld.tv or if the investments are of any size just contact me by email and we'll do it that way uh so i so appreciate your attention we're on every week and on wednesdays visit us at betterworld.tv www.abetterworld.tv or for my work as a consultant and coach both personal and business go to mitchellraben.com Triple W dot, of course, Mitchell Rabin, R-A-B-I-N, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.